Y'all may be seated. My name is Hoffman. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to share the Word of God with you this morning. We are into part four of a six-part series called The Kingdom and the King, in which we're walking through the main storyline of the Bible in just six short weeks. In the very first line of the Bible, you open to the first page, you find these words, In the beginning, God. And then if you flip over to the very last page of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 5, we find these words, And they will reign with God forever and ever. What kind of book are we reading when you read these ends? We're immediately clued into the fact that we're reading a story with a beginning and an ending and a long middle in between. And this fact actually sets the Bible apart from all other forms of religious literature. Other religious books in the world, they offer doctrines, teachings, principles to live by. But the Bible offers us a story. But it's not a simple story. It's long and it's complex. It's over a thousand pages. It's more like an epic, an epic narrative. And like other epic narratives, we find that it has one main plot line that runs throughout. But inside of this one big plot line, there are many subplots and subplots of subplots with complex twists and turns. It kind of can be complicated sometimes with a lot of different complicated characters who are complex like you and me. And we find in this big, long book, we find a lot of genres like wisdom literature, poetry, genealogical lists, apocalyptic writings, letters, laments, and more. And in these ways, it's not unlike other ancient epics. If you think of Homer's Iliad and his Odyssey, or modern epics like the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. But the uniqueness of the Bible lies in its audacious claim to tell us the true story. To tell us the world as it really is. The way things really are. Which is a true story for you and for me and for the whole world. Eric Auerbach was a um, literary scholar and critic who was Jewish. He lived in Germany. And he noted in the Bible that he said this. Far from seeking like, like Homer merely to make us forget our reality for a few hours. The Bible seeks to overcome our reality. And we are to fit our own life into its world, and I would add, and into its story. See, when you go to the movie and you watch Star Wars, you know that you're going to check out of reality for a little while. You're going to suspend rationality. You're going to enter in and just enjoy the story. But once you leave the movie theater, you know that you're checking back into the real world, as we say. But you can't do that with the Bible. It won't let you. You can't leave it behind because it's claiming to reveal the real world to us. The world as it truly is and we as we truly are. Now, our back, he recognized this claim and he rejected it. He said the Bible's audacious claim is tyrannical and it's oppressive. And so do many people today. They find the Bible is tyrannical and oppressive. For the Bible to claim authority of the whole of human life for all people everywhere of all times is outrageous, is it not? So they want to leave it behind, or at least the parts of it that they don't like. But for others, it's the stories of the world that are oppressive. While the Bible story is liberating and it's healing. So we're walking through the Bible's main storyline in these six short weeks, not to exhaust all of its teachings and its principles, but to sketch its main storyline so that we can come to experience more and more its liberating power. As we begin today, I want to take us on an imaginative journey. So if you can, just buckle up. We're going on a trip. 
to a couple thousand years ago, to the time of Caesar Augustus, who was emperor of Rome, to the land of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, to the small town of Capernaum, which sat on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, a small fishing village. And you belong to a family of farmers and fishermen. And for generations you've lived on this land, farming and fishing. And you loved your land as your ancestral land. Abraham received this land by the promise of God. It's the land of Naphtali, one of Jacob's 12 sons, whose descendants, who are your ancestors, received it in their allotment in the time of Joshua. You love your land. And you love your family and your large extended family, which is tightly knit and woven together through all kinds of corporate rituals and customs and festivals. Each week you gather together as a family to celebrate the Shabbat meal. And you gather in the synagogue to hear the rabbis teach from the law and the prophets and the writings. And you love your people. You love the Jewish people. And three times a year, together with your family, you make a road trip down to Jerusalem for the annual festivals and to celebrate with the whole Jewish people the worship of your God. And you are a people who are bound not just by blood and a shared history, but a shared hope and a vision for the future that God wants to give His people. And you grew up on these stories of Israel as history, stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and stories of Joseph and Moses and Joshua, stories of Saul and David and Solomon. And you grew up hearing about the faithfulness of God despite the unfaithfulness of your people. And three times a day, you recite the prayers And the centerpiece of those prayers is the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And you really want to do just that. You want to love God. But it's hard. And on the one hand, you look out and you see the world is beautiful and good. Every morning, the sun rises up over the beautiful waters of the Sea of Galilee. It reminds you of God's beauty. And every week you celebrate the Shabbat together with your family. It reminds you of God's goodness and the peace that he has for his people. And every spring, the barley and wheat fields, they produce their bounty. And every, every fall, the, the grape vineyards and the olive groves are ripe for harvest. The world is beautiful and good, but not all is well. And you're very aware of this harsh reality. Things are not going well for you and your family and your land and your people. And the reason is obvious. Because you live in a militarized zone. Though this is your ancestral land, you've lived for the past 60 years under the dominance of Rome. And before them it was the Greeks. And before the Greeks it was the Persians. And before the Persians it was the Babylonians. Before the Babylonians, the Assyrians. In fact, for the last 1,000 years... Your land has not really been your own. You've been subjected to the imperial powers of the ancient Near East. The Romans, though, they're different. They're not like the others. They're brutal. And they're thoroughly brutal. And they relentlessly press home the fact that they are in charge of you. And to keep their policy of Roman peace, they instill fear in all of Roman subjects. That's how they rule. And every day you're reminded of their presence. Because the troops make their rounds around the Sea of Galilee and they go from town to town, your towns, your ancestral towns, to make sure that none of you get out of line. And then there's the taxes. They keep going up 
and up and up. They're getting so high that your family is struggling to pay them. And you might have to sell the olive grove and the barley field. Or you might have to sell yourself into debt, as a debt slave just to keep the land. Things are not well. And imagine after a long, hard day, you walk to the tax collector's booth, filthy though he is, a filthy trader, and you hand him your last bit of family cash just to pay off the taxes. And you come home to your wife and to your family and you, you're confronted with a question that you cannot answer. Abba, what are we going to do now? And with as much integrity as you can muster, you say to your child, we will trust in the Lord our God. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. The steadfast love of the Lord, my child, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then you go into your closet by yourself, and you shut the door, and you get down on your knees, and you fall on your face, and you cry out, Oh God, how long? The nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. And the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. And we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? You've rejected us and disgraced us. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face from us? Why do you forget our affliction? And our oppression. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. And our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. And come. To help us. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. I assure you there were many prayers. Like these from many closets of many faithful in Israel. In those days. From people like Zechariah. And Elizabeth. And Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna and Peter and Andrew and James and John. They grew up on these stories and they grew up crying out these prayers. They were in a place of suffering, waiting on the consolation of Israel, waiting for God to make good on his promises, waiting for the Messiah that he had promised to David. You see, in the Bible, we find that God brings his people again and again to this place of suffering And yet hope. It's a place where a solid hope in God's future meets the harsh realities of life in the here and now. Where hope and suffering are joined together in the cry of faith. How long, O Lord? How long? And the same is true for us. God brings us again and again to this place. And maybe you're at this place now. You look out into the world and you see what is both beautiful and good. You also see what is ugly and tragic. And if you have the courage enough to look inward, you see the same thing. You see things that are beautiful and good in here, but also what is ugly and tragic. And if you slow down and you pay attention, you notice a third thing down in there, a deep longing coming from a deep place that longs for you to be the kind of person that God wants you to be and this world to be the kind of place He wants it to be. 
Have you ever felt that longing? If so, I hope that today's story will strengthen your hope in God's coming kingdom as you suffer in the midst of this broken world. And for all of us, whether you you feel that intensely or not right now, I hope that today will increase our longing for Jesus, for more of his presence and power now, but also for his return soon. So here's where we've come so far in the story. You see, God created humanity in his own image, to rule the world in partnership with himself. But we rejected God as king and we plunged the world into chaos, into violence, into death. So the story of the Bible begins really as a story of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the surprising twist in this story comes when God comes to a man named Abraham and he makes him a promise. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great people and I'm going to give you a land. And through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Later, his descendants become enslaved in Egypt, but God rescues them. And he establishes a covenant with them that he would be their king. And they would be his people and they would represent him to the nations. One people chosen from among all peoples. Freed from the kingdom of this world to live under the kingdom of God. And through this one people, he would restore his loving rule to the whole earth. But in a tragic replay of the beginning story, Israel abandons God. They worship idols and they fill the land with all kinds of immorality and injustice and violence and death. Having rejected God as king, they ask for a human king, only to regret it when God gives them what they ask for. But God had not rejected them. Nor had he regretted making a promise to them and their descendants. So he raises up a new king, a new kind of king. A humble shepherd boy named David, who is a man after God's own heart. And he did much to lead Israel back to God. He delivered the twelve tribes of Israel from the oppression of their neighbors. And he united them under his rule. And he established Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. And from there he promoted the proper worship of the one true God in accordance with His covenant. And He even prayed that all the nations would be drawn in to this city to worship this God. And David became the model and the standard bearer for all the other kings in Israel. After David had rest from his enemies, he had it in his heart to build God a magnificent temple in Jerusalem to symbolize His glory And his worth. And he wanted to replace the mobile tabernacle that we talked about a couple weeks ago with a permanent house for God. Well, God commended his desire, but promised instead that he would build David a house, in fact, a lineage. And he made him a promise saying, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And from that point in the story forward, Israel's hope began to zero in and focus on this king, this one promised that would come in the line of David, who would not only restore Israel, but he would restore the whole world. That's where we left off last week. So how do we get from this high point in Israel's history with this glorious promise of a king in the line of David, who's sure to come, to that prayer closet in Capernaum, where they pray, how long? How long? It's about a thousand year gap. We're going to try to cover that in the next few minutes. 
just a couple chapters after um, this covenant with David in 2 Samuel, it records this sad story of David's downfall. He committed adultery, and then he committed murder, and then he avoided some difficult questions, and then he made some, some foolish decisions. And all of this had tragic consequences, not just for himself and his family, but for the whole kingdom. And when at his worst, David's life demonstrated the tragic consequences of sin. But there was a key difference in David from him, from almost all the other kings in Israel, is that when confronted with his sin, David repented and he put his hope in the mercy of God. When the prophet Nathan goes to David and he said, you're the man, you're the one who committed adultery and murder. This is how David responded from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. For you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Despite David's obvious failures, on the whole, in his humbling of himself, in his long obedience in the right direction, even to the point of death, and his exaltation to the throne, David symbolized the kind of king that the world truly needs. But before we move on in the story, let me just pause to ask you, what do you do when you're confronted with your sin? I want to suggest that you're confronted with it every day. Maybe from your child, maybe from your spouse, maybe from your roommate, maybe from just the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, maybe through some scripture that you read that you realize, I don't live up to this. What do you do in that moment? Where do you go when you're confronted with your sin? Has Psalm 51 ever become a prayer of your own? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, blot out my transgressions. When was the last time you prayed like this? You see, God confronts us with our sin, not to condemn us, but so that we might find mercy and forgiveness and freedom. If only we repent like David and put our hope in his mercy. Well, after David's death, Solomon, his son, became king over Israel. And he completed the building of the temple and he dedicated it not only as the focal point of Israel's worship, but as a gathering point of the nations where they could come and know God. But despite this great accomplishment, the seeds of destruction were already sown in David's rule and Solomon's rule. You see, he did not oppose worship that was contrary to God's covenant. And then he conscripted slaves from, from, from without his domain for his aggressive and ambitious building projects. And then he took many wives and concubines from other nations, and he set up temples for their gods and idols in those temples so that they could worship. Already the path of Israel to go down into idolatry was now open. And after Solomon's death, Israel was quickly and thoroughly seduced back into idolatry. The kingdom shortly thereafter split into two kingdoms, 
the northern Israel, northern Israel in the north, and southern Judah in the south. God sent prophets to both to warn them of his judgment if they do not turn from the idolatry. But they shut their ears to the voice of the prophets. They would not listen. When confronted with their sin, they would not respond like David. And the prophets recalled to mind the covenant God had made with Moses. That if you love the Lord your God and you walk in his ways, you will be my people. And you will receive and experience my blessings. And you will be a channel of blessings to the rest of the world. But if you do not, if you forsake my covenant and you go after the idols of the other nations around you, I will bring judgment upon you. The prophets warned of judgment, but to no avail. The kings of northern Israel led them deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry. And the land of Israel was filled with immorality and injustice and violence and death. Blood flowed from innocent people in northern Israel. And so God sent Assyria, whom he calls his servant, to come from the north and capture northern Israel and take the people into exile. 722 B.C. Now, what about in the south? A few of Judah's kings heeded the prophet's warnings, and they tried to walk in the footsteps of their father David. But most of them were just like the kings of the north, and they would not listen, and they would not turn, and they plunged Israel into immorality and injustice. And so, in due time, God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to bring his Babylonian armies around to lay siege to Jerusalem. And eventually to tear down its walls and to burn its temple and to carry off all but the poorest of the poor of Israel into exile in Babylon. You see, Israel and Judah had abandoned their God and their whole purpose for existence in this world to be a channel of God's blessings to the nations. It was a dark day. But despite Israel's downfall, downfall, all was not lost. The prophet's warning of judgment had come true. But they also had a message of hope. Judgment and hope were both part of the prophetic message in Israel. And the prophet Isaiah centers the hope of Israel on the truth that God still reigns. The the gods of Babylon and Assyria have not conquered the God of Israel. God is still on his throne. And God will not, in fact, he cannot break his promise that he made to Abraham and to Moses and to David. He will return to Jerusalem. He will set a king on David's throne. He will restore Israel and through them bless the nations. But how? Isaiah 53 tells us that this will happen in a surprising way. That this messianic king who's come to rule Israel in the world will come as a servant, humble, like David. And he will come as one who suffers. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. This is the king of Israel, the king of all nations, despised, rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but we have turned every one, every one of us to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep before His shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall, prolong, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This messianic king, who is Israel's hope, would be like Israel's high priest to intercede before, before, for us before God. And not only as priests, but as the sacrifice itself, he would suffer. And like one of the sacrificial lambs offered at the temple, this messianic king would offer up his life holy and unblemished to God as the ultimate sacrifice, and he would suffer death on behalf of his people. But God would honor him and vindicate his name and vindicate his obedience by raising him from the dead. This royal priest and this suffering servant will fulfill God's mission to gather a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation and to restore his kingdom over all the earth. Now, Jeremiah added to the prophetic hope by declaring that that God would forgive his people's sins and establish with them a new covenant. And that new covenant, he would put his law on their hearts so they would obey God and the, the law of love, not because they have to, because they get to, because they want to. He would write it on their hearts. And Isaiah and Ezekiel both declare that this will happen as God pours out his spirit upon his people. And not only that, but Isaiah speaks of all creation being restored to the joy of life under the rule of God. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The children will play at the adder's den. Sin and death will be no more. In Isaiah 25, we read this. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And this is why the psalmist calls all creation to rejoice in God's triumph over evil and death. In Psalm 96, he says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness 
and the peoples in his faithfulness. When he comes to judge, that means to rule. The earth will rejoice. You see, the promises of God cast a vision for his future. And this vision is meant to stir up our imaginations and captivate our affections for the very kind of world and the very kind of us that God wants to bring, that he wants to give us. And this is why the Bible's story is so compelling. It's not only that it's true, but it is truly a better story than every other story that's offered in the world today. There's simply nothing like this story because there's nothing like the God this story reveals. Well, in 539 B.C., the Persians took over from the Babylonians. And in the following year, the Persian king Cyrus, he allowed the Jews to return to Judah and to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And many Jews did return, but many did not. And the ones in northern Israel were still scattered about the ancient Near East. Well, those that returned, they did rebuild the city. They built the wall. They built the temple. And they reinstated proper worship at the temple. But to their great and enduring distress, most of Israel was still scattered. There was no one sitting on David's throne. The temple lacked God's glorious presence. And within them, there was a tendency toward legalism and a tendency toward ethnocentrism and hatred of the other nations whom they were called to bless. You see, Israel is still dominated by foreign powers. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. Their hearts were not yet changed. And creation was not yet renewed. As history unfolds, Israel's dominated by one foreign power after another. The Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, as we've already seen. This is why, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the faithful in Israel waited, and they waited, and they waited on their king to come. How long, O Lord, how long? Now, for us now, we are on the other side of the Messiah's first coming. And when he came, he dealt a a death blow to sin and to death by his own death and resurrection. He put to shame the kingdoms of this world by his own self-sacrificial love. On the world in that moment. And God's future is portrayed in all the promises of the kingdom that we find in both Old and New Testaments was paid for and secured by Jesus' victory on the cross. And we can experience that future now today, but in measure. You see, the kingdom is here. It's now. The power of God to restore all things is here and now for us to experience, but not yet fully. Israel has been gathered and the nations have come in, yet not all of them, which is why we pray week by week for unreached people groups. Many have yet to hear. There is a king on David's throne, but we have to see him with the eyes of faith. We are the temple of God individually and corporately in which God truly lives by his spirit, yet we still struggle with indwelling sin. We're set free from legalism and ethnocentrism and every other kind of ism that threatens to divide the people of God. But yet we still live in a broken world and we still see the demonic forces of those isms trying to tear us apart as his people. So what do we do in this time between Jesus' first and his second coming? What do we do? We groan. We struggle. And we wait for Jesus. Do you feel that? 
Do you long for more of his power and presence in your life? For more of his saving and restorative work in your heart and in your marriage and in your parenting and in your family and with your friends and with your neighbors and with this state and with this country and with this world? Do you long for more of his restoring power to be let loose in this world? Do you, do you long for his return? Do you? The, the very last line of the Bible, Revelation, uh, in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says this, Surely I am coming soon. And John the Apostle writes this, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of Christians. Come, Lord Jesus. Christians are those who want Jesus to come back. And until then, when the suffering in this world and the suffering in your life is too great to bear, what do you do? You go into your closet, you get down on your knees, you get on your face and you cry out with the, with the cry of faith. How long, O oh Lord, how long? And then you get up from that prayer closet and you go out into the world and you pour out your hearts in love for your neighbor. Because Jesus said, I am with you even to the end of the age. And surely I'm coming soon. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.